0: The reading this morning is from All I Really Needed to to Know I Learned in Kindergarten by Robert Fulgram. Giants, Wizards, and Dwarfs was the game to play. Being left in charge of about 80 children, seven to ten years old, while their parents were off doing parenty things, I mustered my troops in the church social hall and explained the game. It's a large scale version of rock, paper, scissors and involves some intellectual decision making. But the real purpose of the game is to make a lot of noise and run around chasing people until nobody knows which side you are on or who won. Organizing a room full of wired up grade schoolers into two teams, explaining the rules of the game, achieving consensus or group identity, this all is no mean accomplishment but we did it with a right good will, and we're ready to go. The excitement of the chase had reached a critical mass. I yelled out, you have to decide now which you are, a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. While groups huddled in frenzied, whispered consultation, a tug came at my pants leg. A small child stood there looking up and asked in a small concerned voice, where did the mermaids stand? Where do the mermaids stand? I said, What? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you see, I am a mermaid. There are no such things as mermaids. Oh, yes, I am one. She did not relate to being a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. She knew her category, mermaid, and was not about to leave the game and go over and stand against the wall where a loser would stand. She intended to participate wherever mermaids fit into the scheme of things without giving up dignity or identity. She took it for granted there was a place for mermaids and that I would know just where. Well, where do the mermaids stand? All the mermaids, all those who are different, who do not fit the norm, and who do not accept the available boxes and pigeonholes. Answer that question, and you can build a school, a nation, or a world on it. What was my answer at the moment? Well, every once in a while I say the right thing. The mermaids stand right here by the king of the sea, said I. Today is the official start of our Sunday religious education classes for this church year. Curricula have been selected to inspire and delight our children. Teachers have been recruited to engage and nurture them. We on the religious education and worship committees are developing ways to include our youth in more meaningful ways in the worship service. A coming-of-age program you heard about is being planned for our middle school kids. We will offer a middle-age religious education class during the second service. Our map has been drawn. We are starting our journey this year. Most years, we've marked this day by considering some aspect of religious education or faith development. This year, however, I want to ask you some questions. Questions I don't know the answers to right now. Questions about religious education in general, and our religious education program in particular. Questions that I hope will lead you to think about what it is all about and what you want it to be all about. Questions that I hope you will think about after you go home, during coffee, talk to each other about. And eventually, I hope, we will find the answers to these questions together as a community. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, like they do on Fox News, (laughs) I have to tell you that I consider the religious education program one of the highest priorities of our church, and any church. Even maybe the highest. Higher than coffee and donuts, higher than pretty orders of service. So this may color some of what I say today, and you may not agree. But please keep your UU minds and hearts open. The first question I have for you is... What exactly is the purpose of our religious education classes? Have you ever thought about it? What are we trying to achieve with them? I mean everybody, each one of you, not just the parents or the director of the religious education program. Have you thought about it? Do we have written or widely understood goals for the spiritual education of our children? Are you aware of them? What do you think of them? If we do have goals, how have we gone about achieving these goals? What are we doing in our classes? How do we conduct them? How do we select curricula that would bring our goals about? You parents that brought children today, did you have something specific in mind you wanted for your child? How do we know we are accomplishing anything in our program? If we have goals, how do we know we're accomplishing them? Is there even a way to judge this? When the DRE sends out a survey, do you respond? What do you think? Do you ask your kids for their opinions? What is the community's role? What is each one of ours? old and young alike, parent and non-parent, what is our role in religious education and in achieving these goals? Or maybe you think the director of religious education and maybe a couple of people on the religious education committee have the complete responsibility for planning and executing the church's religious education program and ensuring its success. You don't have any role. So those are my questions Keep them in mind. What is the goal of our religious education program? How do we achieve our goals? And who is responsible for achieving them? We adults sitting upstairs now on Sunday mornings come here for many different reasons. Our reasons are even different from Sunday to Sunday. Some Sundays we come to be comforted by a loving community. Some Sundays we come to be challenged by new ideas. Some Sundays we come to be reminded of what is important in our lives. Some Sundays we come to be inspired to take action. But what about our kids? We drag them along in the back seat, sometimes willingly, sometimes kicking and screaming. Why? What is in it for our kids? They may just want to stay home and sleep late and play video games, do something fun. Or we don't bring them because they have something more important to do, a soccer game, Odyssey of the Mind, a sleepover with a friend, a homework project. In the list of priorities for your children's lives, where does religious education fit? My observation is that it is not exactly number one on anyone's list, or even close to number one. I read a story about Ralph Waldo Emerson and his wife, Lydian, and how they raised their children to be, as they called it, moral and religious persons. Their daughter, Ellen, wrote that on Sundays, religious and moral education continued the whole day. She said... Mother's method in the religious education of her children was to have them become familiar with many hymns, sing a song, and learn all the interesting Bible stories. She made it a habit to admit play on Sunday and headed a day devoted to church and to religious study at home. It was the number one priority for the Emersons. Now I realize you're thinking... But life has changed an awful lot since then. Our society today is not the same society as in the middle of the 19th century. It's not even the same society as when I grew up in the middle of the 20th century. When I was a kid, stores were not even allowed to open before noon on Sundays. Non-family activities were not scheduled for Sundays. There were no soccer games on Sunday. But life is just plain more complicated today. Our demands and our diversions are greater. But here is a question for you and perhaps the most important one to consider today. Just because our society has changed, does that mean that the value gained from a period of time set aside each week for spiritual and ethical growth is any less important today than it was in Emerson's time? Personally, I would answer that question by saying that actually it is much more important today. Children today face things that were simply unthinkable when I was young. Easy availability of drugs, mass media full of violence and anger, a growing lack of true concern for others, the encouragement of fear and an overabundance of material things. That is the background against which our children have to learn, mature, and develop an ethical core. Jean Nujar, a UU minister and religious educator, in her book, The Gift of Faith, says our children are privileged with a multiple of opportunities and enrichment all good things but sometimes too many good things they and we are saturated with stimulation and it's the loudest most insistent stimuli that claim our attention the spiritual calls more often in quiet tones and cannot be heard above this din i feel confident that everyone here would agree that we want our children to grow up into adults with high moral values. How does that happen? Parents, is it their complete responsibility? Well, parents are without question the primary religious educators of their children and ought to be. But this is a huge job in this demanding society. It reminds me of a modern-day parable that that I read called The Foolish Father, Now, as this parable goes, there once was a man who had a son who he greatly loved. And he thought within himself, saying, None is wise enough to instruct my son in the mysteries of the eternal, neither priest or Levite. Shall tell him what is good and what is evil, lest his mind be corrupted with error. And he saith, This shall he do. He shall wait until he is a man, and then he shall know himself what he should believe. But it was not as the father thought. For the son did grow and was strong, and he kept his eyes open for seeing, and his ears for hearing. And his teachers were neither priests nor Levites, nor did he come to the temple for instruction but his teachers were them that speaketh into the air and them that were seen in the pictures of Babylon and messengers in bright colors that were brought into the household on the Sabbath day. And when the father was old, he understood that the mind of his son had not been as an empty vessel that waiteth for the day to be filled, but it was like unto a parched field that drinketh of whatever falleth upon it. That is how our children are today, surrounded by voices, images, messages from peers, books, television, video games, movies, entertainment idols, the internet, ideas that are extremely difficult for parents to compete with. When you consider the hundred ways in which a child or an adolescent today can get lost or pulled apart by inducements, they don't even recognize and choices they aren't ready to make and dangers they don't even comprehend, you realize what an enormous responsibility parents have. Reverend Nujar suggests that the most effective way for parents to prepare for their work as religious educators is a religious community. Here they will have support to help them clarify who they are as religious beings and provide their children with a nurturing, supportive community to assist them in this hard work. Unitarian Universalist religious education is grounded in nurturing our children. Our intention is to give them the building blocks with which to form their own beliefs rather than indoctrinating them into a dogma or specific way to think about the world. As Unitarian Minister William Ellery Channing said in the early 1800s, the great end of religious instruction is not to stamp our minds irresistibly upon the young, but to stir up their own minds. Our fourth principle, says, speaks of the importance of a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We believe this search for truth begins as soon as the child can think, and continues throughout his or her entire lifetime. We do our best to support this search. And through religious education, our intention is to provide the information necessary to challenge and encourage each person's path. How well are we doing? Remember Robert Fulgram's friend, the mermaid? Well, this small story shows what good religious education is capable of producing in children. And it shows what happens when good teachers interact with children in ways that ultimately empower, nurture, and affirm them, as well as encouraging their questions. Think for a moment of the tremendous ego strength, imagination and willingness to define herself in terms that come from within, that are exhibited by that little mermaid as she inquires for her place in the grand scheme of things. Our dream for our children is that they develop the same inner strength as the little mermaid, that they become good, strong people with a sense of their own worth, willing to stand up for justice, dignity, and honor. How do we know if we're doing this, if we're accomplishing anything? Mary Marsh, the Director of Religious Education at the Edmonds, Washington, UU Church, when asked that question, said that she judged her program this way, fairly simple ways. I would like to know that every week when a child walks out the door, she's at least a little glad she came. I would like an adult who is not a child's parent to ask him how his week has been. I would like the child to have a little something to eat with a friend. I would like each child who comes to walk out with one little spark of thought she didn't have when she came in. I would like her to be called by her name by someone outside of her immediate family. I would like him to hear the words Unitarian Universalist at least once. I would like them to see at least one candle lit and hear at least one song sung. If all these things happen every week for every child, we will have succeeded. Let me ask you, how do we measure up to this list? Have you asked your children or any of our children that are milling about here if they've experienced any of those things? Try it. Try it today. Now, I said earlier that the religious community can help parents in this part of the child rearing job. Just exactly how can you and I help? What's our role in creating the vision of religious education which helps all of our children grow spiritually? First, obviously, I think it's pretty, Reverend Ward's list is pretty simple. We could do some of those things. Learn the children's names. I think I only know three of them. Call them by name. Introduce yourself. Ask them how their week was. Ask them what they did in RE today. Ask them how they felt about it. Ask all the children. Not just the wizards, dwarfs, and giants. Ask the mermaids. Second, for you parents, you need to bring your kids to church every Sunday that is possible to do so. The fact is, it doesn't matter what curricula we use, how well-prepared our teachers are, how fun or intellectually stimulating the lesson. If the kids are not here, and I don't mean only occasionally here, then nothing we do in RE class is going to make a difference in their lives. They simply have to be here. It needs to be higher on the priority list. And third, this is to everyone here. We all can participate in the religious education program in some way. If preparing the next generations for the challenges of the world is actually one of our highest priorities, we need to treat it as one of our highest priorities. Be a classroom helper. Just sit and hold someone's hand. Give a hug when it's necessary. Serve on the RE committee. The more ideas, the better. The more feedback, the better. Share a talent once in a while. Some music. Um, Building a butterfly garden. That was wonderful. Help with a special program, a scavenger hunt, whatever activity we have. And yes, someday, lead a class. The most frequent answer our RE committee gets when they beg for help is I don't know how to teach children. I don't I'm not good at that. Well, I don't accept that answer. Dr. Barry Andrews, after 30 years as a religious educator wrote, "I have recruited hundreds of church school teachers. I am deeply grateful to them for volunteering." The lives of our children and youth have been tremendously enriched by the contribution of these men and women. What is important in religious education is not how much you know about children, teaching, or even Unitarian Universalism, but how much you are willing to give of yourself, of your soul. The essential qualities of a good church school teacher are a love of children, a sense of wonder about life, Empathy, the ability to listen, and a willingness to share who you are, not what you know particularly. Above all, teachers are mentors and companions of the children as they undertake their religious journeys in life. We're not teachers like in the school system. Let's have a new word for the role. Maybe we'd all be willing. We are explorers. We are wonder companions. The children will make the discoveries. Just give them a ship and a map. They'll do it. Among the most accomplished and fabled tribes of Africa, no tribe is considered to have warriors more fearsome or more intelligent than the mighty Maasai. It is perhaps surprising, then, to learn the traditional greeting that passes between Maasai warriors. Kassarean Ingara, one says to another. Kassarean Ingara. It means, how are the children? This traditional greeting acknowledges the high value that the Maasai place on their children's (coughs) well-being. Even warriors with no children of their own give the traditional answer. All the children are well. Meaning that the priorities of protecting the young, the powerless, are in place. That Maasai society has not forgotten its reason for being, its proper functions and responsibilities. All the children are well means that the daily struggles of existence do not preclude proper caring for the young. I wonder how it might affect our consciousness of our own children's welfare if in our culture we took to greeting each other with this daily question, and how are the children? I wonder if we heard that question and passed it along to each other a dozen times a day, would it begin to make a difference in the reality of how children are thought of and cared for in our own country? I wonder if every adult among us, parent and non-parent alike, felt an equal weight for the daily care and protection of all the children in our religious community, in our town, in our country, in the world. Could we truly say without any hesitation, the children are well? Yes, the children are well. So I say to you, Kassari and Ngarra, UUCL, how are the children at UUCL? Working together, may all our children be well. Blessed be. We stand for him.